Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Jeff Kohlinger. I'm one of our elders. And I have, I'm really excited about the chance to come this morning uh, and to share with you from God's word. I will tell you, though, that before we start, my wife and I have been going to first service the whole time since we came back and uh, to church after COVID. And this is the first time I've been at 10 o'clock. And you know what's really cool? Seeing faces I haven't seen in over a year. It's really great to see all you here. All right, so as we get started, join me in prayer. Fathers, we open your word and explore your plan for living with an open hand. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to begin by showing you a picture, a picture titled Daily Bread, by Michael Beck from his Journeys with the Master series. Now, if you've been to budget forums, you probably remember seeing this, and this picture hangs in my family room. Now, I start with this picture this morning because for me, at least, it so starkly represents one of the greatest ongoing struggles internally that I have. You see, like some of you, I struggle with the idols of of comfort and control and financial security and self-sufficiency. The natural inclination of my heart is to be like the man on the left. Someone who thinks he has to hold on tightly to everything that he's got so that he always has enough to be comfortable now and secure in the future. But as we'll see in the passage today from 2 Corinthians 9, like the open chair on the right of the picture... God invites us into a completely opposite relationship with him and with our resources, experiencing the incredible and God-glorifying joy and freedom that comes with it. So let's take a look at our text for today and know as I stand here today, I am preaching this more to myself than I'm sharing it with you. 2 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he's distributed freely, he's given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, as we unpack this text today, We're going to focus on three main ideas. First, the characteristics of a generous heart, which we'll see in verses 6 and 7. The foundation for a generous heart, which we'll see in verses 8 through 10. And the way to a generous heart, which we'll see in verses 8 and 11. 
So the characteristics, the foundation, and the way to a generous heart. So let's dive in with the characteristics of a generous heart in verses 6 and 7. Now in these two verses, I see three primary characteristics of a generous heart. And that's the heart that's accepted Jesus' invitation to sit with him at the table in the right of our picture. The first characteristic is that of bountiful and not sparing giving. Verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now here Paul's drawing a contrast between two kinds of hearts, right? The sparing heart and the bountiful heart. So what's a sparing heart? It's depicted again by the man on the left of our picture, right? It's a heart that sees God as a taker rather than a giver. And because this person sees God as taking and not and as a demanding God, he sows only a few seeds at a time, sprinkling one here and one there as he goes along, because he needs to hold on to as much seed as he can. He follows the world's perspective, right? The economics that you'll have more if you give less. Five minus three is two, and five minus one is four. So if you want to have more, you subtract less from what you have when you want to give, right? That's the way it goes. The essence of what's wrong is the desire to hold back. Sowing or giving, it occurs, but it's from a heart that wants to hold on or hold back. God wants bountiful giving from a bountiful heart. And that's represented by the right side of our picture, by the man who accepts Jesus' invitation to sit with him at the table. Unlike the sparing heart, it's the heart that sees God as a giver, not a taker. This person sees and trusts God's promise that the more bountifully we give, the more bountifully we will reap. So he casts his seed with an open hand everywhere, not by gripping it in his fist and not by dropping a corn seed and a wheat seed and an oat seed here and there. Why does he do that? Because he understands kingdom economics. That with God in the picture as a never ending in source and supply. The best way to increase a sum is actually to subtract from it. Right? The best way to increase a sum is actually to subtract from it. Five minus three is greater than five minus one in God's economy. Because when that three is invested in kingdom work. It bears back a harvest that's bountifully bigger than the one. And so God wants us to be bountiful givers. The second characteristic is that of the deliberate or purposeful heart, this deliberate or purposeful heart level giving. And we see that in verse seven. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. So what does decided in his heart mean? First, I think it means our giving should not be something that's random or occasional or merely driven by chance or moment-by-moment circumstances. So an example might be simply every week putting your offering in the black box at the back or texting in your offering on your phone and basing it simply on whatever's in your wallet or your checkbook that morning. Now that's good because we're giving and God wants us to do that, but God wants better. He wants more. He wants my heart. And instead, we should give because we've evaluated the opportunity in front of us. And we want to give because God's put it in our heart to give. We should delight in our heart and be deliberate in our, and purposeful in our choices about the amount 
and the manner and the objects of our giving. We should delight in our heart and be deliberate and purposeful in our choices about the amount, the manner, and the objects of our giving. An example of this would be instead sitting down, praying, evaluating my finances, and setting a definite, regular, proportional amount that's given away on a regular and a consistent basis. Now, second, to be heart-level giving, our, God should be, our giving should be driven as much by our heart as our head. Why? Because the instinctive response of a generous heart is to give and to give bountifully. And the amount to be given will usually be suggested by the better feelings of our heart. Now, this doesn't mean we ignore our head and only follow our heart. But, and give me an amen if you've ever experienced this, if we allow ourselves to think about it too much, some other desire or some other perceived need is going to come into play, right? And we'll end up probably giving much less than we would have done if we had followed the first impulse of our heart. I know that's true for me. It was true for these, me this week as I was making some decisions. And so in general, the safest and best rule if you want to give from a generous heart is simply, as often as we can, give just what our heart prompts us to give when the opportunity arises. The third characteristic of a generous heart is cheerful giving, giving that's not reluctant or under compulsion. And again, verse 7, each one must give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I'll start with looking briefly at the two ways God does not want us to give which again are the man that sits on the left-hand side of our picture today. What's reluctant giving? It's giving that's grudging or given reluctantly or regretfully or often with little or sometimes a lot of complaining or even out of sadness. What's giving under compulsion? It's something that's given with fear of consequences or because someone's manipulated us into giving or we're giving out of a concern for a desire for a good reputation or a positive public opinion. Examples? I'll bet you never, none of you have ever experienced this one before. Every year, my boss would invite me to go to the Boy Scouts breakfast, where I felt compelled to go and compelled to give. Now, don't get me wrong. In the end, I was happy to support the Boy, Boy Scouts. My, my boys had been in it at the time. I was supportive of what they were doing. But it wasn't joyful and it wasn't cheerful giving. For the most part, I went because I felt I had to and I gave the amount I did because I felt I had to and not necessarily what I freely chose or wanted to. Another example for me uh, would be Wanting Chuck McDonald, when he counts the money every week, to look in and say, ooh, look at that Jeff Kohlinger. Man, does he give a lot of money, right? That's, again, giving out of compulsion because you want something that's not right in return. Instead of giving in a reluctant way or out of compulsion, God wants us to give cheerfully. Why? Primarily because that's how God himself gives and particularly to us as his children. God is the ultimate cheerful giver. An example? 
Think about salvation. Salvation's not something we win or we earn. What is it? It's a, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, it's a completely free gift that God gives, gives to us as his children. God's nature is to delight to give to us. And as John Piper so amazingly puts it, God is most delighted when this delight in giving is displayed among us as his adopted children for our joy and for his glory. God is most delighted when this delight in giving is displayed among us as his adopted children for our joy and for his glory. Brothers and sisters, when we set our hearts to be part of this God-driven rhythm of generous joy, we tap into an infinite source of divine power. God's sovereign love and practice of cheerful giving. Now, I want to close this section with a short story about the German preacher August Franke. And he founded an orphanage to care for homeless children in the latter part of the 17th century. One day when Franke desperately needed funds to carry on his work, a destitute Christian widow came to his door and she was begging for a ducat, simply one gold coin. Because of his financial situation, he politely but regretfully told her he couldn't help her. Disheartened, the woman began to weep. Moved by her tears, Franke asked her to wait while he went upstairs to his room to pray. After seeking God's guidance, he felt the Holy Spirit wanted him to change his mind. So trusting the Lord to meet his needs, he gave her the money. Two mornings later, he received a letter of thanks from the widow. She explained that because of his generosity, she had asked the Lord to shower the orphanages with gifts. That same day, Franke received 12 ducats from a wealthy lady and two more from a friend in Sweden, totally unexpected. He thought he'd been amply rewarded for helping the widow, but he was soon informed that the orphanage was also to get 500 gold pieces from the estate of Prince Van Wartenberg. When he heard this, Franke wept in gratitude. You see, in sacrificially providing for that needy widow, he had been enriched, not impoverished. In sowing bountifully with a generous, deliberate, and cheerful heart, he had reaped bountifully in return. He experienced kingdom economics, that in God's economy, the best way to increase a sum is to subtract to it from it by sowing or giving more for Franke, just the one gold coin, his last one, rather than less. Now, having looked at the characteristics of a generous heart in verses six to seven, that's bountiful and deliberate and cheerful giving. Let's move on in verses eight to 10 to what I think is an absolutely amazing description of the basis or foundation for how we as Christians can have such a joyous or generous heart. Now, I want to look at this in verses eight through 10 through an illustration of a fountain that you're going to see on your picture or your screen, that I came across in preparing for this message. And as we look at this principle and how Paul prays for it to be evidenced in the Corinthian church, I wanted to th- you know, think of it in the terms of the illustration of this kind of three-tiered fountain. So you have the source at the top from which the water's pouring, and then there's a conduit or a basin in the middle into which the, wa- the water pours, and then there's a final kind of conduit or basin at the bottom where it just kind of all flows over and runs everywhere into the bottom of the of the fountain. 
In our analogy, the source or God at the top pours into the conduit of the basin, which is us, an abundant supply. That the flow out of the conduit or the basin, which retains only what's needed for sufficiency and contentment, can overflow in abundant generosity, both back to us and also to the benefit of many others. And that's the principle and the prayer that we see Paul do in verses 8 and 10. And that's what we're going to look at. So let's look first at verse 8. The source. That's the top of the fountain reflected in the phrase, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. Note that not only are we promised all grace, but also that it would abound to you in the sense that God is able to give us whatever we need in order to be generous. Think about this. Paul is saying that God will never call us to be a giver of something he will not supply. God is never, God, Paul is saying that God will never call us to be a giver of something he will not supply. It could be our time, and that's always in short supply. It could be a special talent or special skill that I have that's in high demand. It could even be my last two pennies. In each case, if we believe there's no end to the ways we can be blessed when God is able to make all grace abound to us, then we can give whatever's asked of us and freely and cheerfully, even if like the widow's mite or Frankie's gold coin, it's the last that we have. So that's the source. Now the conduit, and that's reflected in the phrase, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. Now note that the Greek word Paul uses here for sufficiency is the same one that he uses in 1 Timothy 6.6, Remember that from a couple weeks ago? Now, godly, godliness with what? Contentment is great gain. And Paul says here that God gives a special gift to the generous heart. What does he give? Always, at all times, all contentment in all things. That's an enormous amount of alls. How do we have this contentment? Well, as Pastor Jeremy explained two weeks ago, that contentment comes primarily from enjoying God. And what does that mean? That means finding our full satisfaction as a beloved child of God who treasures Christ and his beauty and his glory above all else. Using our fountain picture, Paul's saying here that this kind of contentment is crucial to allowing us to manage the size of our basins or the conduit or our lifestyle. And what he wants us to do is be channels of blessing, not reservoirs of retention. He wants us to be conduits of generosity, not cul-de-sacs of accumulation. Paul once says that this contentment is crucial in allowing us to manage the size of our basins or our lifestyle. Channels of blessing, not reservoirs of retention. Conduits of generosity, not cul-de-sacs of accumulation. The third level, the outflow, which is reflected in the phrase, you may abound in every good work. Paul finishes by saying that God can bless us materially and spiritually so that if we're willing to be open-handed, cheerful conduits, we may abound, not just muddle along, but abound in every, not some, but every good work. We may have much, we may have little, 
the promise is the same. The more we give for the sake of others, the more we'll be enabled by God to give. God promises to make generous Christians capable of even greater generosity, whether of our time or our talents or our treasures. Let me say that again. The more we give for the sake of others, the more we'll be enabled by God to give. God promises to make generous Christians capable of even greater generosity, whether of our time, our talents, or our treasures. So that's the idea of the fountain of abundant generosity from verse 8. Now let's look quickly at verse 10. The language is a little bit more complicated here, but not much in, the, in its word order. And it's really more of a prayer that Paul is, is praying for the Corinthians, is that they would actually experience this principle but exactly the th- same three elements of our fountain of abundant generosity appear in verse 10. First, the source. And that's reflected in the phrase, he supplies seed to the sower, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. Here we see Paul giving a somewhat different formulation of the all grace will abound to you thought in verse 8. Here Paul's praying not only that God would replace what they've given away from what God initially supplied, but also that God would do so in a multiplying or increasing way, giving them even more seed to sow than they had before. And perhaps Paul had in mind the parable of talents in Matthew 25. Remember the parable of the talents? The guy who had five talents and two talents and they gave them away for the kingdom's work. And what happened? They were blessed back with what? Another five talents and another two talents, right? But that wasn't all they were blessed with. They were blessed with the opportunity to have even increasing responsibility for even greater work for God's kingdom. God supplied back not just the seed sown, but an even larger amount to allow even more generous investments in his work. Second, the conduit reflected in the phrase, he who supplies bread for food. Here we pretty much have the same concept as in verse 8. Paul reiterates that God promises to provide all that we need to be content in every situation. Here are basic daily needs, right? Bread for food. They'll be met both now and in the future. And third, the outflow. Reflected in the phrase, and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Here Paul adds that as an outcome of the multiplied seed that gets sown, God would use that seed sown to produce an increasingly bountiful harvest of righteousness as a reward for their cheerful generosity. So what's the harvest? Well, it's a lot of things. From our passage, I think it includes the ability to do great, even greater and greater good works. And in doing so to bless even more and more people. And ultimately, storing up eternal treasures in heaven for our joy and for God's glory. So as we wrap this section up, I want to go back and just say there's, I think, two things Paul's trying to teach us about living a life of abundant generosity. First, believing and trusting in God is both the source and the outcome of our giving. And that's whether it's our time, it's our talents, or it's our treasures. As a source that God's able to give us and then replenish for us and even multiply for us, whatever we need in order to be exceedingly generous in whatever opportunities he puts in front of us. As an outcome that God in turn blesses and multiplies what we do give from what he supplies 
First in supplying to give us us to give again, but also in multiplying our giving and our harvest of righteousness that he promises out of that generosity. Second, that the extent and amount of that outflow of God's grace through each of us, the extent that we're open-handed channels or conduits of it, that depends on very heavily on how deeply we're living a, a life of faith and contentment in Christ. Now, I want to illustrate this fountain principle with a story from my own uh, life back when Andrew, my son, was about 12 years old. We went out into Colorado to a father-son camp. Um, and while we were there, the camp director asked for financial help for other dads and sons to be able to come to two more camps that were scheduled over the rest of the summer. On our way back home, we got bumped off of our flight from Colorado Springs to Detroit. And what did we get? Two round-trip tickets. Pretty cool, right? So as we were standing around and talking, we were like, well, what should we do with this? And we said, you know, we should give them back to Brian so he can help another dad and another son come to the camp. Now, because there were more flights from Denver to Detroit, they rerouted us up to Denver to catch our flight home. But because they needed to get the plane out, they said, well, we'll just, we'll just get you on a plane when you get to Denver. What do you think happened when we got to Denver? The next flight was oversold. So we volunteered to wait, and guess what we got? Two more tickets. <laughs> but that's not the end of it, folks. Literally, I'm telling you, the agent said, just wait. We'll close this flight down and get it out. The next flight is three gates down. We'll walk down there and I'll get you on. Guess what happened? It was oversold. Two more tickets. And not only that, she said, well, let me put you in first class for the trip to Detroit. And let me give you a voucher so you can go have some food for the four extra hours that you're going to be here in the airport. Suddenly, because Andrew and I were willing to have an open hand, God used us as channels of his abundant grace. Now six tickets to enable three other dads and three other sons to attend that camp. God's harvest of righteousness, right? But God wasn't done with me yet. Because probably unlike all of you, I'm really slow and I'm really stubborn. Less than a month later, I was in the Memphis airport with another oversold flight. This time, because we were planning a family trip later in the year... I said in my own heart, hmm, this would be a good way to defray some of the costs of the trip. Two of the tickets, right? What do you think happened? I was told by the agent that they were definitely going to need me. She said, you can go ahead and call home and then tell them you're going to be late. But you know what happened? A bunch of passengers didn't make the flight. They didn't need me to get off. And I believe that was God's way of really punctuating for me how hard it is sometimes to get God's truth from here to here. How hard it's been for me to sit in that chair with Jesus and stay there and trust him rather than get back out and try to hold on to what I think is mine. It's the difference between living with an open hand and a bountiful heart as a channel of generosity or living with a closed hand and a sparing heart as a stopped up reservoir simply collecting his generosity 
but not letting it spill out for others. So just how practically speaking, do we live that way? Trusting God as the source and outcome of our generosity and stepping into that flow of abundant grace. Well, I think the way to that generous heart comes primarily in a combination of both what Paul does in verse 8 and then the principle he lays out in verse 11. In verse 8, which you won't see on the screen, just note that at the beginning, Paul states what? God is able to make. He doesn't say God will make. He said God is able to make. And I think what Paul is saying is that the flow of God's fountain of abundant generosity is always available and ready for us. The key, which comes from the so that which follows, is how to step into and become an open-handed channel or conduit of that flow to others. And that key comes in verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. What Paul's praying for here is that God would give us more than we require for our own family's needs. There's the being enriched in every way. But only as and to the extent that we step into the flow and we're ready to be used as channels or conduits rather than reservoirs or cul-de-sacs. The idea of being generous in every way and in every circumstance. Now I want to be clear. I'm not saying that God opposes our income increasing or that we enjoy, that we don't enjoy the material blessings that he's provided to us. I know some very deep lovers of Jesus who God has blessed with great wealth and they are some of the most generous stewards of their time and their treasures that I know. But I do believe that when God increases our income, he is not putting his stamp of approval on a life of similarly increased ease, comfort, and luxury. I think a very helpful and challenging example of this is the income, the giving, and the spending habits of John Wesley, a 17th century pastor. And you'll see that now on the screen. Note three things. Note his increasing income on the left. There's your increasing abundant supply, right? His highly contented lifestyle, the middle column, a basin or a conduit with amazing lifestyle control, thus ready to sow that abundant supply. And the bountiful harvest of righteousness in the third column, towards the end of his life, giving away to the poor 98% of his income. I'll also tell you, if you want another amazing story, grab Chuck McDonald, our accountant, and ask you to tell him, tell you his story. Chuck gave up a huge business because God called him to the mission field. He sold it all. He went to Africa for decades and he came back with nothing. And since he's been back, God has been amazing in how God has provided for him and giving back out of the abundance of what he sowed for kingdom purposes. Brothers and sisters like John Wesley, God's commissioning us to the exciting, the joyful, the God-glorifying mission of tremendous and creative generosity. God's saying to us, make as much as you want, but then be an open-handed, cheerful conduit to give away as much as you can. Amen? So what does this all look like as a practical matter in an individual lives? Well, I'd like to close by offering just a few suggestions. First, going back to our picture on the 
what that opened the message. First question is, on which side of the picture are you right now? Perhaps like me, your heart is more often on the left side. Jeff, I want to take a seat at the table right now, but my heart's just not there. I get it. If so, I suggest you spend some time this week meditating on this passage, particularly the incredible promises in verses 8 through 11. And then look at Psalm 12, the exam- 112, the example of the generous man, which is what you see in verse 9 in the middle of those two verses. Ask God to have you help, help you have the faith to join him at the table, to have contentment in just enough because Jesus is our highest and supreme treasure. And to be an open-handed channel for joyous, abundant generosity that flows from that relationship. Now, this is all too often where I've been throughout life. And particularly the last two years since I got retired from Dow a bit earlier than I expected. And certainly earlier than I had mapped into my financial plan. Now, my wife Pam has always been sitting at the, in the chair at the table in that picture. She grew up in a family that for a time lived a life of pretty radical daily dependence in ministry. I've been more of an in and out kind of guy. When things are good, I'm in. When things get tough, I'm back out trying to hold on. And that's been particularly true for the last two years as we lost our comfortable income stream and then lived through the market turmoil of COVID. I got to be honest, I'm not hurting, but I struggled in that. Because I wanted to hold on to what I thought was mine. And so as I prepared for this message this past month, I've been convicted of the need to take a bigger step of faith. To let go. To take a more permanent seat at the table. To open up my hand even wider. Trusting in God's promise of supply. And so Pam and I have started to take some further steps in deepening our stewardship. I won't kid you. For a man who struggles with the idols of control and self-sufficiency and comfort, it's hard. And for me, it's scary. These are small steps, and we've got a lot further to go. But in studying today's passage, I've been convicted even more deeply that God offers me something way, way better. If I just have the faith and the courage to take a more permanent seat at the table with him. Now, perhaps your heart's more on the right side. Jeff, I'm at the table, I'm all in, and I want to step out more fully as a channel with a more generous and open hand, but I'm not sure what to do next. Well, here's a few suggestions. Perhaps again, like me, you've gotten a bit lazy over time, allowing your lifestyle to creep in proportion to your increasing income. I know, it's easy, it happens. So for some of us, that may mean taking some time to think and pray about how to shrink the size of our lifestyle. Reduce the size of our basin, right? To increase the flow of water over the edges. Freeing up more of what God has blessed us with to give away with an open hand. Now I'll give you a couple of examples and I won't claim any applicability to my own life. Perhaps it means giving up the daily $5 Starbucks coffee drink. Or maybe it's the multiple TV subscription services that you don't really need and you don't watch often enough. Or maybe it's the $100 annual fee for each of the seven rewards cards that you use instead of the one or two credit cards with no annual fee. Perhaps it means committing to reserving an amount of money out of every paycheck, even if it's a small amount, and setting it aside right off the top as money to be given to God's work. 
The amount doesn't matter. The source doesn't matter. What matters is taking a first step of faith and trusting in God in what you do. Not only to supply back what you're giving, but to supply you with more. Like the parable of the talents. So you can multiply your giving and multiply the harvest that arises from your generosity. And finally, for others, perhaps your financial situation is one where you're just barely making it. You don't really have any additional margin for giving right now. I get that too. And if so, and frankly, for all the rest of us, even if that's not where you're at financially, I want to suggest to everyone listening today, you, sl- you try a slightly different version of my plane ticket experience. Go away this week, open your hands and your heart before God, and simply ask him in prayer over the next year to use you to channel a specific amount from his unexpected resources for some sort of kingdom work that he lays on your heart. Ask him to give you some specific amount that's going to come from a source you don't know about today. It'll be a surprise that he wants you to use for some specific kingdom work. Maybe it's $100. Maybe it's $1,000. Maybe for the great faith people sitting here, it's 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 $5,000. When we first got out of school at the first church we went to, they used to use this faith promise approach to their missions giving. And I will tell you that I still remember to this day the amazing stories of how God used obedient, open-handed, content believers to be channels of blessings from unexpected resources to do an amazing job of sending missionaries all over the world. Now, this is also somewhat where we as an elder board are right now with our proposed budget for next year that those of you who are members received yesterday. From the world's perspective, that budget doesn't make sense. And we do have contingency plans if things don't go as we hope and expect. But what we do have is almost 30 years of experience of seeing God's unwavering, complete, abundant faithfulness to this church, including through some very challenging times. And so this coming year, we're proposing that we step out in faith. And if necessary, we sow some of the seed from our cash reserve, which God has abundantly provided, as we implement our vision and our mission. And as we do so, we're going to trust God to replenish and even multiply that seed, both through all of us here now and through those we're trusting God to bring to join our gospel-centered family. And how are we going to do that? Simple. We're going to collectively move one step closer to Jesus day by day as open-handed channels of his abundant resources for kingdom purposes. So if nothing else, if God's spoken to your heart this morning, try the challenge that I gave. Give God a chance to work in an unexpected way. Open your hand Ask him to make you into a conduit of some amount of his resources from a source you currently don't expect for a ministry he's going to put on your heart. And if you do this, and if God answers your prayer, tell others your story. Tell me your story. I want to hear it. Because when you do, others are blessed. You get great joy and God gets great glory. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your abundant grace that you poured out on the cross to redeem us as your children. Help us to live not with a closed hand tightly gripping our time, our talents, and our treasures. Rather, help us to live with an open hand and an open heart, living with full contentment in Christ and deep trust in your promise of abundant supply. And Father, in doing so, transform us into cheerful, bountiful, overflowing channels of generosity in our church, in our spheres of influence with our neighbors and our friends and our workers, and in support of God's work to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.